0: Eustace is kind of a spoiled little brat, and uh, Eustace has a a, a lust for power that you can see kind of evident in just the little things C.S. Lewis brings out about him. And he expresses it in ways of bullying. He's mean to people. Uh, he teases. Uh, he tortures animals. He tattles. He uh, is disrespectful to adults. And he's kind of like a little Nebuchadnezzar in training. You read about him, Daniel. Well, in the story, uh, Eustace finds some, some treasure in a cave in Narnia. And he is elated because he begins to imagine in his mind the life of ease that he's now going to have and power. He falls asleep, though, in this cave, and when he wakes up, he finds he's turned into a hideous dragon. And uh, Lewis writes, "...sleeping on a dragon's hoard with greedy, dragonish thoughts in his heart, he had become a dragon himself." He thought like a dragon... And he became a dragon. He set his heart on power and he became a hardened predator. Because we become like what we worship. And the transformation that Eustace needed to turn him back to what he needed to be is such a picture of our hearts that can tend to turn to hearts of selfish dragons bent on building our kingdoms. I'd like to give you a message this morning from the word of God entitled, As God is my witness. As God is my witness. And please open your Bibles to Micah chapter 1 this morning. In God's word this morning, Israel had the same problem that I just described.
1: And Yahweh was going to do
0: something about it. As we gave the introduction to this book last week, we saw that Micah, whose name means who is like Yahweh, is a, is, it teaches us about a majestic God, a majestic God. He teaches us not only about a God who is above and transcendent above His creation and majesty, but a God who is near, a God who is imminent, who is close. But He also taught us about a God who is constant, whose character does not change whether He is speaking to a wealthy group of people or a poor group of people or this social class in the city or this rural village. He's a God who is constant in His character. But he's a God who has given us His word. He's a God who has speak, who has spoken. He is a revealing God, and he is a God who has announced. And then we saw at the very end in Micah chapter seven, where Micah brings it to a close, and Micah uses kind of a play on his name, who is like Yahweh." And he says in Micah 7 verse 18, "Who is a God like unto thee that pardoneth iniquity? He's a God that hears our repentance, that as was sung this morning, as we humble ourselves and turn ourselves toward Him. He hears. He is delighted in that. Isaiah 66 says, God delights in a broken and a contrite or an open heart. David said the same thing in Psalm 51. And so, in Micah chapter 1, verses 1-7, through 7, we have the word of the Lord that came to Micah. There are four things I want you to be on the lookout this morning. In your bulletins and insert, if you wanted to track along, in the blue flyer there. But I want you to see in Micah chapter one, and we'll look specifically in verses two through seven, that there is a summoning, there is a summoning, there is also a showing, there is a showing, there is a stipulating, and there is a sentencing. And I want to imagine you to imagine your minds a courtroom scene. Where God is the judge and the jury. And you are the accused. That is a scene that is unfolding here in the book of Micah. It says, The word of the Lord that came to Micah the Moorishite in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. The first thing I'd like you to see this morning is the summoning. summoning. It says in verse 2, Hear, all ye people... Hear, all ye people. It was, and then he says, uh, oh, Hearken, O oh earth, and all that therein is, and let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from His holy temple. Hear, all ye people. The first thing about this summoning this morning was that it was a global summons. He says, Hear, all ye people. Hear, all ye people. And he says, Hearken, or listen, O oh earth, and all that is in it. There's no one exempt from this. Listen to this message. Let this be a warning. There's a global summons. There's, first of all, a global summons to all citizens. To all citizens. He says, hear all ye people. The people of this earth. To hear in Hebrew means more than to receive information by ear. It means to listen. To understand what is being said. And to respond to it appropriately. He says, all you peoples, hear This is a God who is majestic, who is not like the... Idols of the pagans that were all around who, who were over certain provinces. They had the gods of the hills. They had the gods of the valleys. They had the gods of the fertile seasons. They had the gods of the dry seasons. They had the gods of the stars. They had the gods, the, the gods of, 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 uh, of the earth. No, Micah's God is not like that. He is a universal overlord to whom all nations must render account. That is the idea here, says one commentator. So he is the uh, here's the global summons to all citizens, all people of this earth. And secondly, to all creation, to all creation, it says, hearken, O earth and all that therein is. That word hearken means to have a conscious, willing and attentive use of the ears. So first of all, it is a global summons. But secondly, it is a governing summons, a governing summons. He says, and let the Lord God be witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Now, that's kind of a frightening thing if you think about it. Let the Lord God be a witness against you. I mean, there's no higher authority you can appeal to. You understand that the Lord is a witness against you you. That's a problem. And it is a picture again of a courtroom scene. So there's a governing summons from the court. Notice the titles of God, the names of God that are used. Let the Lord God be witness against you. The Lord God. That word Lord is Adonai. Uh, uh, he's just, that is the idea when it's together with God is the idea of sovereign Lord, Lord of all. He's the governing Lord. He's the creator and owner. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness of it. He is a witness against you. He writes about Samaria and Jerusalem. Witness reflects the idea of a legal or or a court setting. The Lord of the universe will testify against you. Imagine. Imagine that. So it is not only a governing summons from the court, it is also a governing summons from the cathedral because he says, the Lord from His holy temple. The Lord from His holy temple. And verse 2. God is described as the Lord who is testifying from His holy temple. What is that? Well, that reference here, and you see the references in the Old Testament referring to God's heavenly temple. Psalm 111 verse 4 says, He's descending from His temple. He, this is a God who is, who is testifying against you. He is coming from His holy temple. Psalm 11.4 says, The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. Habakkuk 2.20 says, But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. And that is the idea here. God is speaking hush and listen because it bears a heavy weight. Zechariah 2.13 says, Be silent all flesh before the Lord, for He is aroused from His holy habitation. Samuel Davies was one of America's greatest preachers, and he wrote a great hymn, Great God of Wonders. He died at the age of 37. But his fame as a preacher was so great in London that news reached King George II that there was a dissenting minister from the colony of Virginia that was attracting notice and drawing very crowded audiences and and curious about this this speaker. The king expressed a desire to to hear him. And so the chaplain of the king invited Davies to come to England and preach in the royal chapel. And so he agreed. And he is preaching before the king and all the royal family. And as he's preaching, the king is, was noticed by Davies to be seen speaking at different times to those around him. And while the king was speaking, he paused, and he became silent. He looked in the direction of the king, and he exclaimed this, When the lion roars, the beasts of the fields all tremble. And when King Jesus speaks, the princes of the earth should keep silence and that's the idea here it doesn't matter how great and mighty you are hear and be silent because God is speaking He is giving a summons to all creation it is a governing summons that has been given from the court and from the cathedral the temple the temple the place of God's throne by definition it is holy it is set apart The root idea of the Hebrew word for holy is set apart. And notice, he says, the Lord from his holy temple. And I'd like you to put your bookmark in Micah because it's really hard to find. And go back to Isaiah chapter 6, please. Isaiah chapter 6, because I think here you get a better picture of what Micah is talking about. The Lord is coming from his holy temple with his summons. Isaiah chapter 6, a very familiar passage, verses 1 through 5. Holiness to the Lord, it begins with the Lord seated as a king upon his throne. He's saying this morning, Nick, let us worship a king. He's high and exalted. He's separated from his creation in that sense. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple, the throne and the temple. Above it stood the seraphims, each one had six wings, with twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly, and one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the post of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. When the word is repeated three times in the Hebrew, it is a point of emphasis. You see, the Hebrew doesn't have a comparative and a superlative like good, better, and best. Three times the word is repeated this is a superlative. There's nothing better. There's nothing more holy. So, holiest, 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 holiest is what is being said here. Isaiah as it, is moved by it. In verse 5, he says, Then said I, woe is me, for I am undone. I am come apart in front of this. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for mine eyes have seen the king on his throne, in the palace, in the cathedral, in the temple. The Lord of hosts. What is Isaiah's first utterance upon that scene? He says, mine eyes have seen the king. The temple was holy in the sense it was set apart to King Yahweh for His holy purposes and functions in His service and for His glory. Talk about a summons. It's not light. There's a summoning. Secondly, there is a showing. Look in verse 3 back in Micah. Verse 3. For behold, the idea is, Look! Pay attention to this. The Lord and that majesty and that majestic scene where the earth is filled with His glory and that temple room scene, the Lord cometh forth out of this place. Now if God gets off His throne, it's more than Dad getting out of his easy chair, right? To deal with some things. God is coming off of His throne. He is coming from what? He is coming from that cathedral. He is coming from the temple. It says the Lord cometh forth out of His place and will come down. This is the showing of God and tread upon the high places of the earth. He is coming, is showing here, is coming from glory, coming from His glory. The psalmist says that he desired to see the Lord in his temple among his gates. And he talked about the the beauty of holiness. The Lord is coming out of his place. And now the king is appearing as a divine warrior. When God comes off his throne in the regalia of a warrior, you best sit up and pay attention. He is preparing to punish his covenant-breaking people, Israel. His dwelling place. Coming from His dwelling place. So He's coming from His glory. And where is He coming to? He's coming to a sin-ridden world. He's coming to gloom. To darkness. Coming from the brightness of His glory. Coming to people who walk in darkness. Who have turned away from Him. He's coming down. He's coming forth out of this place. And He will come down. Coming to gloom. What is he coming with? He's coming with his heaviness. Look what it says here. And tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains shall be as molten under him. And the valleys shall be cleft or ripped apart, split as wax before the fire. And as the waters that are poured down a steep place. He's coming with His heaviness. He is the sovereign Lord of history, of nations, of earth, and His peoples. He intervenes. He acts. He conquers and judges. And how can mere man stand in His presence of such a God when even... Micah points out the earth's topography can't even stand up to Him. Can't endure His coming. It's not mentioned by name, but it's all through here. The glory of God. The Hebrew word for the glory of God comes from the root word kabod. It's a word that means to be heavy or weighty. It's used when it talks about Eli who falls out of his chair and he breaks his neck. And it says because he was heavy, he was overweight, there's a mass to him. And the glory of God is something that is massive. It is great. It is in abundance. There is a density of magnitude. He is the, uh, uh, the picture of the invincible juggernaut who is, who is coming now into the nation of Israel. The glory of God is His excellence. It is His beauty. It is all that He is. It is the sum of His holy character. And it is coming down from glory without sin to rebellious mankind. So He's coming with His glory, with His weight. But there's another picture of God's glory. <clears throat> it's His heat. You see, God's glory is always pictured uh, as, 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 as something that is weighty, something that uh, is, is light and bright and brings heat. Look at the phrases that are used The mountains shall be molted or melted under Him, the valleys shall be cleft as wax before the fire and as the waters that are poured down a steep place. see, the glory of God is also pictured as a blaze of light, a brightness. No eye can behold a glow. Have you ever seen steel melted in some of the kilns? The white hot flame of the kiln? It's a picture here of God's glory. Or maybe some of you men have used a a settling torch to, to cut metal in two. And this is because God's glory is not only the massive weight of all He is, but it is the shining out of all of His excellence, like looking into the sun. The glory of the Lord shown round about them, remember, in Luke chapter 2? Shone. The brightness of His glory is blinding, it is dazzling, because it is the white hot heat of His holiness. It slices and melts the earth and turns what is in the path of the Sovereign Lord into a molten liquid that runs like a waterfall, Micah says, the water as, and as the waters that are poured down a steep place. He's coming in His glory to an unholy people who have fallen short of His glory. By exchanging the truth of His glory into the worship of the profane. Julia Ward Howe, in the 1860s, caught a picture of this hymn during the American Civil War when she was visiting a Union camp on the Potomac River near Washington, D.C. She heard the soldiers singing the song, John Brown's Body. And she was taken with a, with a strong marching beat. And she wrote words the next day. She says, I awoke in the gray of the morning. And as I lay waiting for dawn, the long lines of the desired poem began to entwine themselves in my mind. And I said to myself, I must get up and write these verses, lest I fall asleep and forget them. So I sprang out of bed, and in the dimness found an old stump of a pen, which I remembered using the day before. I scrawled the verses almost without looking at the paper. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling. Micah says treading here. He is trampling out the vintage. Where the grapes of wrath are stored. He hath loosed the faithful lightning. Of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching onward. Glory, glory. Hallelujah. She writes, I've seen him in the watchfires Of a hundred circling camps. They have builded him an altar. In the evening, dews and damps. I can read his righteous sentence. By the dim and flaring lamps, his day is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. There is a showing of the Lord of hosts. Thirdly here, there is a stipulating, a stipulation. Really in verse 5 it says, For the transgression of Jacob is all this, and for the sins of the house of Israel... In other words, he's saying, for all this, all that is written in verse 2 and th- uh, verse 3 and 4, and all that will happen, and will continue to write, is because of this. It comes down to this. This is why the transgression of Jacob. The sins of the house of Israel. That phrase there, the transgression of, of Jacob here. He's talking about the contagion of sin, the spreading of sin. Transgression means rebellion. It is uh, the idea of of turning, uh, having, being told what to do and turning from it, very simply. The sins of Jacob is the idea of falling short of the standard of God's law. And what does he say in verse 5? For the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? He says, so, so let's unpack this a little bit, he says. Is it not Samaria? So. Uh, the, the, the capital city of the northern king of Israel, Samaria, seemed to be like the epicenter of all this. And it was like, a, like when you drop a rock into the pool and the ripples spread out through the rest of northern Israel. But he doesn't leave them alone. He talks about the southern kingdom, Jerusalem and Judah. He said, what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? See, God had told them, uh, defile not ye yourselves in any of these things. For in all these the nations are defiled which I cast out before you. You see, the cities of Samaria and Jerusalem, they had set the pace of sin and, and had spread to the rural areas. And God had told them you shall therefore keep my statutes and my judgments and should not commit any of these abominations, neither any of your own nation nor any stranger that sojourneth among you. When they were coming into the land, before all this happened, God said, the way the people lived, that you're to root out. He says in, uh, uh, in Leviticus 18, verse 27, For all these abominations have the men of the land done which were before you, and the land is defiled. He said, Take heed that the land spew not you out also when you defied it, defiled it, as it spewed out the nations that were before you. So think about it. When God brings, you no know little Bible history, God brings Israel into the land of promise, land of Canaan, And he tells him to take care of the pagans, get them out who are living in such rebellion to him. And now they're like the same thing, they're doing the same thing. And that land is going to spew them out as well. Remember, God is constant, He's unchanging. He says, whosoever shall commit any of these abominations, even the souls that commit them shall be cut off from among their people. Therefore shall you keep my ordinance, that you commit not any one of these abominable customs which are committed before you, that you defile not yourselves there, and I am the Lord your God. Sure enough, they did. And so there is the contagion of sin here. And these stipulations, they had broken God's covenant. God had laid out His covenant. He said, if you follow My covenant, uh, you will be blessed. If you do not follow My covenant, in the end of Deuteronomy, you will be cursed. They had broken His stipulations. But also, they had celebrated sacrilege. Look at the end of verse 5. He says, what is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? High places. A high place was a place on a mountain or a hill where people worshipped. Usually idols. Pagan people in the land of Israel often worshipped on hilltops because they thought that would bring a closer relationship to their gods. And before David... Um, moved the central sanctuary in Jerusalem and Solomon built the temple. The people worshipped the Lord at altars throughout the land. But after that central place of Jerusalem was set up, the Israelites were supposed to go to Jerusalem to worship God. But many of them, attracted to that practice of pagan high places, abandoned the worship of the Lord for pagan worship. And Micah says... and. Verse 5, what are the high places of Judah? Are they not Jerusalem? Jerusalem, the place of God's holy temple where they're supposed to go. They were even on the hills outside of that still worshiping high places. No wonder that Micah in sarcasm here is calling Jerusalem the high place of Judah. They were disobeying God outwardly as well as inwardly. We need to think about this for a minute. Idolatry is something that goes on in the heart. In Ezekiel chapter 14, in verse 3, God speaking to Ezekiel says this, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their heart and put the stumbling block of their iniquity before their face. Should I be inquired of at all by them? Therefore, speak unto them and say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Every man of the house of Israel that setteth up his idols in his heart, and put a the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face, and cometh to the prophet I the Lord, or answer him that cometh according to the multitude of his idols, that I may take the house of Israel in their own heart, because they are all estranged from me through their idols. Therefore, say unto the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, Repent, and turn yourselves from your idols, and turn away your faces from all your abominations. For every one of the house of Israel, or of the stranger that sojourneth in Israel, which separateth himself from me, and seteth up his idols in his heart. He's not even talking about the statues, is he? He's getting deeper. The idols of the heart. And put it the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face. And cometh to a prophet to inquire of him concerning me. I, the Lord, will answer him by myself. And I will set my face against that man, and will make him a sign and a proverb. And I will cut him off from the midst of my people. And you shall know that I am the Lord. I'm talking about serious stuff, they were celebrating sacrilege, idolatry, and it wasn't just the idol on the mantle. It was idols in their heart things they were worshipping in their hearts because that's where it starts so what will happen Well, fourthly here there is the sentencing sentencing verses six and seven here's a sentence the judge has pounded his gavel he has said this is what will happen therefore I will make Samaria as a heap of the field The capital city of the northern king of Israel. And as the plantings of a vineyard. And I will pour down the stones thereof into the valley. And I will discover the foundations thereof. And all the graven images thereof shall be beaten to pieces. And all the hires thereof shall be burned with a fire. And all the idols thereof will I lay desolate. For she she gathered it of the hire of an harlot. And they shall return to the hire of an harlot. You're saying, well, what about Jerusalem? He's just talking about Samaria. He had already uh, said Jerusalem was just as guilty. Well, next week, verses 8 through 16, is the focus on Jerusalem here. But now he's dealing with Samaria. He sentences them. So he's focusing on Samaria in the northern kingdom. He says the sentencing is first to ruin. To ruin. Look what he says Therefore, I will make Samaria as an heap of the field and as plantings of a vineyard, and I will pour down the stones thereof into the valley, and I will discover the foundations thereof. That prophecy recorded here began to be fulfilled even during Micah's lifetime. When Assyria captured Samaria in 722 or 721 BC. You can read about it in 2 Kings 17, verse 3 to 6. And if you want to imagine in your mind something that would be comparable to what the Assyrians did, you can just plug in your mind the atrocities that you hear Isis doing. Those are the things that the Assyrians would do to their um, captured people in order to strike fear in their hearts. In 2 Kings 17, verse 3 to 6, we're told that Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria. Hoshea was the king during that time, and Hoshea was his vassal. They had an agreement. And Hoshea paid him tribute money. But the king of Assyria heard about a conspiracy by the king of the northern kingdom of Israel, Hosea, to break free of that vassal relationship. And So the king of Assyria took Hosea and put him in prison. And as punishment, he went throughout all the land of the northern kingdom of Israel. And he went to Samaria and besieged it for three years. You can read all this in 2 Kings 17, verses 3-6. to And there is no more Samaria. You can go there as a tourist today, and there is no Samaria. And the people that were taken captive in the northern kingdom are no more. They became the Samaritans as they were forced to marry the Assyrians. He says, it's a heap of rubble. It will be a place for planting vineyards. Now, imagine this. How do you get a city with all buildings and walls turned into a place for planting vineyards? What do you need to plant vineyards? A nice, clear area, right? He said, it will be plowed like a field. The stones that they would build their city upon would be thrown or pushed down to the valley below because that city was built on a hill. And as I said, you can stand on the hill today and see nothing but ruins. So the sentencing is to ruin. But it's more than that. It's to repayment as well. Repayment. He says in Deuteronomy 23 that there shall be no ritual harlot of the daughters of Israel or a perverted one of the sons of Israel. You shall not bring the wages of a harlot or the price of a dog to the house of the Lord your God for any vowed offering, for these are an abomination of the Lord your God. If you look at the end there in verse 7, it says, And all the graven images thereof shall be beaten to pieces, and all the hires thereof shall be burned with the fire. The hires were those who worked in the pagan idolatry temples. And all the idols thereof will I lay desolate. For she gathered of the hire of an harlot, and they shall return of the hire of harlot. What is he saying there? Probably wondering, what in the world? Well, <clears throat> temple gifts to pagan gods are also translated here. Um, hires or wages they were the gifts that the people of Samaria would give to the shine prostitutes as part of the pagan fertility rites and so Samaria had collected gifts that were paid to temple prostitutes and so, the Assyrians, when they come and conquer, will, be, will, will take a hold of those gifts themselves and they will take it back to Assyria, Nineveh, and they will pay their own temple prostitutes with, with Samaria's uh, money they had taken. They would transfer the wealth Samaria had from its idolatry to their own temples, where it would be reused again for immoral and idolatrous worship. So the punishment. It's the crime. Listen, folks. He is the sovereign Lord. There is none like Yahweh, none greater or better. And lest we look at this and say, that was them. Anytime there is punishment in the Scriptures, it is a forerunner, it's a foretaste of the punishment of the nations that will be experienced in the end. The final judgment and the last day. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 11, He says, Thou wilt say that the branches, Israel, were broken off, that I might be grafted in. Well, because of unbelief, they were broken off, and they'll stand us by faith. Be not high-minded, He says, but fear. For if God spared not the natural branches, take heed, lest He also spare not thee. Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of God on them which fell, severity, but toward thee, Goodness, if thou continue in his goodness, otherwise thou also shalt be cut off. And they also, if they abide not, still in unbelief shall be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in Hope, So for Israel. He says in Second Thessalonians 1, verse 7, And to you who are troubled rest with us, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels and flaming fire taking vengeance on them that know not God and that obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power, when He shall come to be glorified in His saints and to be admired in all them that believe in that day. So where does this hit us here? Well, The issue was they had idols of the heart. I want to ask you this morning, what absorbs your heart and imagination and plans more than God? What are you seeking in this world to give you what only God can give? And the answer to that question is, it's anything but the Lord Jesus. It's a counterfeit. It's a counterfeit God. It's anything that is so central and essential to your life in your opinion that if you lost it, you would feel like life would hardly be worth living. It's something that you would spend your passion, your energy, your your, your, your actions, your financial resources on very easily. And you know what? It can be even good things that God gives us. Gifts that have replaced the giver. That would be something as wonderful as family or your children or your grandchildren or your career, or making money, or next achievement, or a claim, or other people's opinions of you. It could be a relationship. It could be a search for approval, a skill, security, comfort, your beauty, your brains, sex, sexual lust, pornography, substances that lead to abuse, food, fitness, political causes, moral causes even. Your good deeds, successes, fixing other people, controlling others, you name it. It can turn into an idol of the heart. It's anything that deep down you think that if I had that, then my life would have meaning and value and significance and security. And really, it's what Jesus says its what you really worship. It's what you could not bear. Listen. Is there anything in your life you could not bear to put on the altar and surrender to Jesus? That is the idol of your heart. It's different for everybody. Totally different. We all have them. We're all to fight against them. Many times in America, it's the false promises of money, sex, and power. To be honest with you. Manifest in a variety of different ways. But I want to tell you this morning that the only hope that matters is Jesus. But Jesus only matters because there is terrible news. And God had given, through Micah, terrible news to these people. And the terrible news is that in so many ways we are like Israel in their idolatry. And we are in a heap of trouble. Terrible news that we have to come face to face with this glorious Jesus, the judge of all the earth. We have fallen under the condemnation of our Creator. He is bound by His character, preserve the worth of His glory, the weight of His glory, the showing forth of the excellency of His glory by pouring out His wrath on the sin of the idols of our heart. But the hope is Jesus because He has given us an unchanging truth. That has to be told to our neighbors, has to be preached in our churches, has to be carried to the nations. That that God has finalized a way to satisfy the demands of His righteousness by taking upon Himself, apart from any of your or I's merit, to accomplish rescue. In the infinite wisdom of God, He has formed a way for His love to deliver us from His wrath without compromising His holy righteousness. And what is that wisdom? It is Christ died, risen, and ascended in our place. He is the one by which the love of God can save sinners from the wrath of God and uphold and demonstrate the righteousness of God because He does it all paid in full so God's purpose that he would be glorified and magnified in the universe and that he would have a people who would be from all times and all nations that would rejoice in him above all things when we fall short of that he's provided a way through Jesus to come back to him I told you about Eustace there and I kind of left you hanging that was a dragon. But there's good news about Eustace One night, after he had several weeks of being a dragon, he meets a lion, a mysterious lion, and the lion challenges him to try to take off the dragon's skin. He can't. He peels off a layer, and he finds he's still another layer of dragon underneath. He tries and tries, but makes no progress, and the lion says this, You will have to let me do it. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you, but I was pretty nearly desperate now, so I just lay flat down on my back to let him do it. Their very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling it off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. Well, he peeled the beastly stuff right off, just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt. And there it was, lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than the others had been. And there I was, as soft and smooth as a peeled switch, and smaller than I had been. I turned into a boy again. Well, to a fairy tale there is, Aslan represents Christ, and that story bears witness to what we discovered, that pride leads to death, that idols in our heart lead to breakdown. When we turn to God instead of living for our own glory, He transforms, resurrects, merges in the image of God, restored through Jesus Christ. You will do much for the glory of God when you Make much of him and not yourself. There's a, Not all the verses of My Eyes Have Seen the Glory are in our hymn book. Julia Ward Howe writes these additional verses. This one isn't included. I have read a fiery gospel writ and burnished rows of steel. As you deal with my condemners, so with you my grace shall deal. Let the hero, born of woman, crush the serpent with his heel, since God is marching on. He has sounded forth the trumpet that shall never call retreat. He is sifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching on. And in the beauty of the lilies, Christ was born across the sea with a glory in his bosom that transfigures you and me. As He died to make men holy, let us live to make men free. Well, God is marching on. He is coming like the glory of the morning on the wave. He is wisdom to the mighty. He is honor to the brave. So the world shall be His footstool and the soul of wrong His slave. Our God is marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah! Our God is marching on.